begin today a, a new series through the book of Nehemiah. And as I've been reading through some of it and then studying chapter one this week, I believe there's a lot we can learn here that'll be encouraging and strengthening to our body. By way of introduction, I want to take a few minutes to help us gain some familiarity with the historical place of Nehemiah and where it falls in world history at the time that it was written. Uh, because the Bible is not written or not laid out in Scripture chronologically, it can at times be very difficult to know uh, where stories and important people and events and places fit in uh, to the chronological record there to be able to help us understand how things are progressing in the timeline of Scripture and through history here. And uh, the Scripture reading there, Beecher was kind enough to read Jeremiah 52. And once you find your place in Nehemiah, I would encourage you to go over to Jeremiah 25, where we will then uh, begin our study, our, our introduction here on where Nehemiah fa- falls into the timeline. Put your finger in Nehemiah and then go with me to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25. In Jeremiah 25, and we'll flip through a few uh, passages here in Jeremiah, we get the prophecy of Jeremiah of 70 years of exile in Babylon. Jeremiah made this prophecy here in verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all people of of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Move on down to verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So here's the prophecy of Jeremiah, that there will be 70 years of exile. And if we go over to Jeremiah 39, just a few pages over, we see the prophecy fulfilled. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, this is verse 1 of Jeremiah 39, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, and a breach was made in the city. And thus begins 70 years of exile. And as Beecher read in Jeremiah 52, it is recounted there. So where does Nehemiah come into play? Nehemiah comes into play at the end of the 70 years. So we have uh, the nation of Israel that go into, into exile for 70 years and then Nehemiah comes at or around the end of those 70 years. 
In fact, uh, as Beecher was reading in Jeremiah 52, it mentioned in verse 16 and 17 about some of the people that were left in the city. And these are some of the people or their descendants that Nehemiah speaks about and inquires about at the beginning of his writings in Nehemiah 1. Uh, The nation of Israel, 70 years prior to the time that Nehemiah comes on board, is a world power. Um, They have gone from a small, uh, insignificant, very weak nation to one that has very prominent and exercised a lot of power, not only just uh, in war and through military exploits, but also through uh, their holdings of land and uh, the amount of cattle they had. They were a very rich nation. Unfortunately, um, in God's sovereign decree, they, they wandered from God. And there was brought about a time, although his mercy extended for quite some time, to help try to draw them back through the prophets. Um, they wandered, and the Lord... Uh, executed judgment upon them in 70 years of exile. And then Nehemiah comes on board. So if you were to actually take the book of Nehemiah and insert it chronologically into scripture, you'd find it right before Malachi. It's at the very end of the uh, story that we have of the Old Testament and at the very beginning of what we call the intertestamental period. And that's the 400-year period of time between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. So we're right at the end of uh, the Old Testament when we come into Nehemiah. So although it's before Psalms and Proverbs and even Job, in fact Job, if you put it chronologically, would be even all the way into Genesis, um, Nehemiah comes actually at the end of the Old Testament. And it sets up well uh, what the Lord is going to do and gives us a good example of a picture of Christ before we get to Christ in the New Testament. The Old Testament has been historically grouped into four different categories. You would have the law, you would have history, you'd have wisdom, and you'd have prophetic books. And the book of Nehemiah is one of the 12 books of the Old Testament that would fall under history. It's uh, thought that this book is written between 445 and 425 B.C., so right around that 400-year mark before Christ comes A.C., Let's look at some of the particulars of the book of Nehemiah. If you have your finger there, flip there with me. You'll notice that it's 13 chapters, and it is actually written by, the, by Nehemiah, and it chronicles the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem and the two trips that Nehemiah takes from Jerusalem to Susa, which is one of the royal cities of the Persian Empire. You see that in verse 1 of Nehemiah 1. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital In ancient manuscripts, you have the book of Ezra Ezra, and the book of Nehemiah uh, pretty much combined. And there is uh, some debate as to the time periods of when those men come into play. But it's very clear according to the scriptural record, Ezra was there first. But we're not quite sure uh, how much overlap there was and if there was, um, when Nehemiah came into play, if there was not so much overlap. But we do know that Ezra was there first. In terms of distance... Susa was 800 miles from Jerusalem. Context for us, that would be like you being in El Paso and wanting to go to Beaumont. Because you live in the great state of Texas, that's pretty much tip to tip, side to side. That's 800 miles approximately. Well, if you got into a car and drove the 70 miles an hour, biting by the speed limit, it would take you a little over 11 hours to make that trip. If you averaged 20 miles a day, walking it would take you 40 days to get there. If you walk straight three, uh, three miles an hour, you get there basically in 11 days. 
or you had to walk 267 hours. So it, it, was, it was a long distance. I mean, for us, that's a long distance to drive, and that's the distance that Nehemiah is from Susa, and yet he will make that journey actually twice. It was no small, easy task for him to get there. When we're studying a book uh, that is of the historical narrative, I think the question can also be, uh, often be asked, well, what, what can we gain from this? Uh, there's some lists in chapter 3 of different names. How do we, how do we see the gospel in this book? Uh, where do we see Christ in this book? What are some things we can learn and apply to the Christian life? And uh, you've, you've got to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, dig a little deeper uh, in the historical narrative, but there is much here and is very rich. And by casual glance, this book would look like something on leadership or how to face adversity. But much deeper than that, I think we have a picture of Christ in Nehemiah and some of the opposition that he faced is a picture of what we will often face on the daily basis as believers. What do we know about this man, Nehemiah? Well, really, this first couple verses in Nehemiah 1 is pretty much all we know. We know he is um, there at Susa, the capital, uh, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. We know that he had some brothers. Look with me at verse 2. Then Hananiah, one of my brothers, came a certain man from Judah. Uh, the book of Maccabees, according to Matthew Henry, suggests that he might have been a priest but we don't know that for sure. We don't even know where he was born. Some have thought that he was maybe born in Jerusalem, thus he was an older man, uh, having gone through the exile. Uh, others believe he, wasn't even, he had never even been to Jerusalem before and was actually born in Persia and was a younger man during the 70 years of the exile. As for an occupation, look with me at the end of Nehemiah 1. We find out a very, which we'll note here in a minute, in a very brief sentence, what his job is. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer to the king of the house of uh, Artaxerxes, which you see there in chapter 2, verse 1. And this was a very high place of honor. The cupbearer in those days, if we would think of someone that just kind of like a butler brings some drink or something to the the person of the house. And so our minds automatically shift. Well, you're a servant, therefore you're of a low individual. Uh, in the biblical times, a cupbearer actually had quite a bit of prominence, quite a bit of power. Uh, think of it, if you were a king of a world power, would you trust just anyone to bring you your wine or whatever else you were going to drink? No, you wouldn't. You would trust a man that, uh, you, you would trust, put your trust in an individual who was trustworthy, who was a man of honor. And it's very interesting that Nehemiah, a Jew, is put into that place. Isaiah 55, 8, we're told, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God's plans will always be accomplished. And he always has his people in place, even though it may defy some logical reasoning, to ordain his purpose, his plan. Think of Moses, who finds himself in Pharaoh's palace. Moses finds himself in Pharaoh's palace, a Hebrew, when uh, the Egyptians were in power. Why did that happen? That seems illogical. You find this little baby in a boat, and somehow he grows up in Pharaoh's palace. 
David, who was anointed king as a very young man, finds himself in the house of Saul, the king. That seems quite odd. Joseph finds himself in Egypt and rises to great power there. Daniel is in Babylon and rises to great power there. Esther is in the palace of King Ahasuerus. And then the preeminent example is Christ is a carpenter's son in the little town of Bethlehem. God specializes in doing things that do not seem to be logically in place. We would think, well, here's this great prominent power. Why in the world are you putting someone that you, is actually an enemy and is in subjection to you in your palace to help you rule? But these are the things that God has done. God's ways and plans are not limited to physical abilities, physical beauty, economics, political influence, or any characteristic that we as humans hold up as valuable or necessary for God to use. We normally think, well, you can't be used because you don't have the right looks. You can't speak well. You, you, mu- you must have some money, you, whatever it would be. And yet that's not the way God works. His ways are not our ways. What God's desire is, is that we would be faithful, that we would love him, that we would love others, we would be humble. One thing we can know very much about Nehemiah in this first chapter here is a little bit of his character. He was a humble man. There's more evidence of this throughout the book, but I would note one of the things that you see very interestingly enough is because he was in a place of power and prestige uh, and probably wealth as the cupbearer, you would think he would first start out by saying, and there in verse 1, I was in Susa the capital, and this is who I am, and this is the place I occupied. But no, actually, you don't get any of that. You get a short sentence at the end of, verse, at the end of chapter 1 that really is just necessary for the t- rest of the telling of the tale. Now I was cupbearer to the king. That wasn't his, his place and position on earth was really not as important to him as it was who he served, who he worshipped, who he called a Lord. Humility is one of the probably most difficult characteristics of, any, of anyone, especially us as Christians, to emulate in our lives, to emulate a Christ-like characteristic. Humility must be probably one of the more difficult ones. Pride is a natural byproduct of our sin. You don't have to teach a newborn child how to be proud you might be able to help them develop um, bad habits Uh, you might be able to help them learn to speak rudely just by your example as a parent but you don't have to teach them how to be proud it's a natural inclination of the heart and it is one that is very difficult for us to change into humility even those who have been saved by the grace of God fight this sin and yet it so often crops up and only through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit can we, are we enabled to develop habits of humility rather than pride. Notice already how Nehemiah is a picture of Christ. A type. Christ was humble and his humility drove him, as we will see in Nehemiah's life as well, to do extreme things. Extreme measures of obedience. Philippians 2.8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was Christ's example, and Nehemiah sets it for us as well. He had to take some extreme measures of obedience for his Lord. It might be noted, I think, that humility, a sign of humility or a sign of pride, 
uh, can often be seen when someone is offered to do something for the sake of Christ, um, when that thing to do may seem impossible or improbable or even unpopular. And Nehemiah certainly had an impossible task. He was 800 miles from his task. He may have actually never been there and he had to do something in the face of adversity. And yet that didn't stop him at all. As I mentioned, we know that Nehemiah had some brothers. You see that in verse 2, Hanani. And we see at verse um, 2 of chapter 7. Go over there with me. Nehemiah 7, chapter 2. We meet this brother Hanani again. I'm not sure who who Nehemiah's father was other than his name which we see there at verse 1 of Nehemiah 1.1, 1, 1, the son of Hakaliah. Uh, but I would certainly like to meet him because it's very rare in Scripture that you see faithfulness to God passed down more than a generation or two. But apparently this man, um, the Lord either used him or went around him and used other means. But Nehemiah had some brothers who sought the Lord as well. Nehemiah 7.2, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. How about that on your tombstone? This man was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Could be said of Nehemiah's brother. So apparently they ran, uh, ran well together and they sought the Lord together. And this is the gentleman that the Lord brings, Nehemiah's brother, brings from Judah. And when he comes through the capital city there, uh, Nehemiah asks him a question. And let's look at the question in verse 2. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. He wanted to know simply how the nation of Israel was doing. How was it faring? Nehemiah knew that the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. Nehemiah knew the promises God had given to preserve his nation. Nehemiah knew the prophecies given of the coming Christ. Nehemiah knew very much the importance of Jerusalem. And so he's inquiring, how is it going? He's, he knows uh, the prophecies of Jeremiah, that this is at the end of the 70 years. And he's probably wondering, what is the Lord going to be doing here but look at Hananiah's response verse 3 and they said to me the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire a simple translation would be that the nation of Israel at that time was in dire straits the the walls the gates that which symbolized Um, confidence and power and protection and security had been broken down and the people were discouraged they were living in fear they were unprotected from any neighboring armies or really anyone who wanted to come in and plunder they were at their mercy they were at the mercy of anyone who would desire to harass them now here's where we begin to get into uh, this man Nehemiah Look with me at verse 4. You can tell a lot about an individual and how he responds to public tragedy in private life. And look with this. Look with me at this. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
Have you ever seen anyone who has received, and you may be that individual, or you may have seen someone who has received bad news? Bad news about something or someone that is very close and dear to that individual's heart. When that happens, what is the physical response that's getting? You go weak need. You, 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 have to, you have to sit down because you can't stand. Or some people faint when that happens. There's actually uh, an entire medical study on this where your heart s- speeds up or slow to, slows down so quickly upon hearing this news, it takes you a few seconds for the blood flow to catch up to the amount of blood pressure that you have going on and you, you get very weak. That's the same way that Nehemiah responded. Something was so close to his heart. He was so burdened by what was going on with his people. He had to sit down. There was a physical response that came. And not only did he just sit down, he wept. And that's not just, I cried a little bit. This was uh, pouring tears. And he does it even when after everybody leaves, but wept and mourned for, na- for days. And the important thing to notice about him weeping and mourning for days is he did this before the God of heaven. It wasn't a staged act to say, oh, you know, we do that, right? How's so-and-so doing? Oh, really? Man, that's just horrible. That really burdens my heart. They turn and leave. Hey, how you doing? You just move on right to the next thing. Not to say that it's not always times real, but it's not as real as if you're having such a burden about this individual that you literally go weak and you have to sit down and it, it it weighs upon you irregardless of who's around you. And then Nehemiah takes it before the only one who can actually do something about it, which is for the God of heaven. It should be noted, and I think it's probably as obvious here, that uh, the burden of our hearts is going to be shown clearly by how we respond physically, in private. You might have a physical response outwardly, but one that, will drive, that really shows the burden is how physically you respond in private. Now, I, I think um, our time is limited in allowing us to look at uh, the, the spiritual response Nehemiah has, which we'll pick up here in the coming weeks. But I want to look a little further at the application we have here to Nehemiah's physical response and, and how we can uh, use this as application for our day. Let's, um, let's look again up here at, at Nehemiah 1 and verse uh, 2. Through three, and I'm going to read straight through this, and then I want to make some some application points on what these uh, things represent in the story, how they apply to us today. Verse two through verse three. That Ananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, "The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame." The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. If you're making notes, I would encourage you to make the note that this city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, for us, is a picture of the church of Christ, the body of Christ as a whole. God's chosen people were the nation of Israel and through them salvation was brought to all who by his foreordained decree he has chosen and sovereignly elected. But then the body of Christ, so then... The body of Christ is the church, and that's who is represented here. 
We are his chosen people. And not unlike Israel, we, didn't, we don't have anything to offer. Israel at that one, at one time was just one man. Because we know in Ephesians 2, 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He took the dead person that I was, unable to respond, unable to do anything on my own accord, and he made me alive. And by his grace, he's conforming me to his image, that which will glorify him. So if the city of Jerusalem is a picture of the church, what about the walls? You see that in the end of verse 3. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. The walls of a city and the gates are symbolic of defense, of strength, of confidence, of hope. Go with me over to Isaiah 60. Isaiah chapter 60. Turn with me there in your Bibles and we see how Scripture uses symbolism, walls and gates to show us what this would symbolize for us in our own lives today. Isaiah chapter 60, look with me at verse 18. Isaiah 60 verse 18, A violence shall no, be, shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. I think the walls of this city, according to scripture here, would be symbolic of salvation. But then what about these gates? We'll turn with me over a few chapters back in Isaiah to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26, 1 through 2. We see what the gates represent. Isaiah 26, 1 through 2. And that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Heat sets up salvation. There it is again. As walls and bulwarks. And then here's verse 2. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. So a gate is keeping something out and keeping something in. That doesn't give us much uh, more information. Let's look at a few other passages. How about Proverbs, um, excuse me, Psalm 100. Psalm 100, you would probably know this by memory. Psalm 100 verse 4. Enter his gates... A little more information there. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. And then I think the passage that will give us the most clarity on, these, on this gate symbolism would be in John 10. John chapter 10, verse 7 and 9. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Christ is the gate. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And only by him and through him can we enter into salvation. Or in symbolism, the walls. Uh, we cannot enter into those walls salvation unless we go through the gate unless we go through Christ and I think the application for us as Christians today is very clear uh, the church of the body of Christ in America is very weak is very weak uh, the Bible in our postmodern world has been regulated to a good story and some good ideas but certainly it's not an absolute truth it's not something that would define a permanent line between heaven and hell 
It's just something good you might want to listen to in our postmodern world. The gospel story has been added to, subtracted from, watered down, and generally regarded as just another of the many ways of achieving relationship with God. In many ways, we are in Nehemiah's day where we can see that the walls have really been broken down and the gates are really just not even there. They've been burned down. They've been thrown away. You can get in any way you like and you can get out if you don't want to be in there. Recently, uh, Ligonier Ministries partnered with Lifeway Research, and I would encourage you, if you want to, go read uh, the research they did, but they did this whole survey of about 3,000 people on the state of theology in the U.S., and basically what people are thinking about important different topics on the study of God. And I just want to read um, a few of these, just to give you an understanding of what we're facing with, and this is predominantly uh, the evangelical community. Beliefs about goodness and sin. What do people believe about goodness and sin? Only 16%, 3,000 people, only 16% agree with the doctrine that says people do not have ability to turn to God on their own initiative. Instead of acknowledging depravity, the majority of Americans believe the good in people can outweigh the bad. 67% agree everyone sins at least a little, but most people are by nature good. Have you read scripture? Go to Psalm 14. There is no one good. No, not one. Four in 10 agree. Four out of 10 agree. 40%. God loves me because of the good I do or have not, or have not done. Good I do or have done. Excuse me. God loves me because of the good I do or have done. Beliefs about salvation and religious text. Orthodox Christians believe in the exclusivity of belief in Jesus Christ for salvation, meaning Christ alone. While the majority of Americans believe that salvation is in Christ alone, many also nod to other sources of salvation or believe people can contribute to salvation through their own effort. Less than half of Americans agree with orthodox doctrines related to the Bible. While more than four in ten agree the Bible is accurate and the written word of God, a similar number believe the Bible is not true literally and is open to each person's own interpretation. That would be postmodernism. What the Bible has to say on ethical issues is blatantly rejected by 42% of those surveyed. As with views of God, Americans, whether evangelical or not, want salvation in the Bible on their own terms. These questions also reveal a deeply confused public and church population. The survey reveals that 61% affirm that God has authority over creation. That same majority, however, thinks they are in control of their own salvation. Did you hear what I just said? 61% say... God has authority over creation, but that same number says, I'm in control of my salvation. If this isn't clear that we have broken down walls in America, I'm not sure what else is. The majority of Americans, 53%, agree with the doctrine that salvation is found through Jesus Christ alone, 53%. But 45% agree that there are many ways to get to heaven and three in ten agree that people will have a second chance to follow God after they die. Are you kidding me? Many Americans appear to place confidence in their own efforts for salvation rather than God's grace. This is seen among 71% of Americans who agree, 71% of who they polled, who agree an individual must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation. Similarly, 64% of Americans agree a person obtains peace with God by first taking initiative to seek God and then God responds with grace. 
we definitely have some broken down walls in this country. But I want you to again go back to uh, verse 2 of Nehemiah 1. Notice who Nehemiah asks about Hananiah, who Nehemiah asks of Hananiah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. Now that's an important note. Because he didn't ask, hey, what do the enemies think of Jerusalem? He didn't think of, hey, what are the, he didn't ask, you know, what are the neighboring countries uh, find popular about our people? He wanted to know how are the people of God doing? And so often we have a thought of, well, we're doing okay, but how is everybody else doing? Rather, we need to be asking the question, especially with what is out there today, is how are the, how are, how are the, how's the church doing? How is the people of God doing? 1 Peter 4.17 For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God and if it begins with us what will become of those who do not obey the gospel? I think it's very clear according to Nehemiah the burden of our hearts should be the body of Christ. Because until we have a strong body we're not going to be really that attractive. Lately due to some personal things going on in my family's life not the Cody Carnett family but other external family. I've been studying a lot on postmodernism. And there's an entire section, part of the Christian world who believes you can be postmodern and go to heaven. Postmodernism, in a short definition, means there's no absolutes. Everything's relative. If that works for you, that's great. If it doesn't work for you, find something that does. It's heresy. This is, the, this is the world that we live in. And yet that oftentimes doesn't burden me near as much as the man down the road. But those people are probably going to hell just as fast, if not faster, than the man down the road. We've got to begin to develop a burden for the heart of the people of God and the church and how we're doing. We certainly hope for revival in this land and we hope that our nation's political leaders will be reformed by Scripture. We hope that the church will grow stronger, but are we concerned about the souls of those we know falling away or backsliding? Maybe, but how concerned? Is it to the point that we're physically moved to prayer and private fasting and mourning for days on end when no one sees us or knows what's going on? The physical response that Nehemiah had certainly came from his heart and affected his physical body and I think that would be a sure sign of whether or not how we're doing not to say that we're always going to be moved that physically I'm not suggesting that at all but what you're doing in private about issues that you feel are important in public is probably is a very good sign of really whether or not it's on your heart or not and Nehemiah physically is moved to do something that is just an outward expression of what he knows he cannot do internally. He knows he cannot help this nation of Jerusalem that's broken down. And he goes to the one who absolutely can, the only true source of power. He goes before the God of heaven alone. Now, I will, we will see in the coming weeks the spiritual response, uh, but I would suffice it to say that Nehemiah went to God uh, as is required by all those who would come before him. He went in such a way, he went humbly, uh, he went in repentance, he went in worship, 
He went in adoration. He went in praise. He went in thanksgiving. And all of them uh, were expressed before God because if you're going to be used by God, you first need to be right before God alone. Even on a day-to-day, situation-by-situation basis, I think we've got to learn from Nehemiah's example that we've got to go to God first, rather second, third, or fourth. Whether it be a small issue or a great issue, we should go to God first. And I think it's important to mention here that the name Nehemiah means comforted by the Lord or comforted by Yahweh. And that's what essentially he was doing is he was going to find his comfort from the only one who could really supply eternal comfort, God alone. He understood that the Lord has a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. He understood that the Lord can carry what we are not made to carry. That the Lord is sovereign and all-knowing and all-powerful. That the Lord's grace is sufficient. That his faithfulness is great. His mercy is everlasting. His plans will never fail. He will work all out for good. He will be glorified and he delights to draw near to those who draw near to him. We're going to see that in Nehemiah's prayer, in his spiritual response in the coming weeks. But that should be our understanding. If we're reading our Bibles, we're going to know that about the Lord. And that's where we're going to go to find our comfort, not necessarily in whatever other ways we might seek it. Nehemiah went to the Lord as a first response. Notice in verse 4, as soon, the words left Hananiah's mouth, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. It was a first response to go before the Lord. And I think for even the smallest things in our life, we need to understand and emulate that example and go to God first. Welcome to the beginning of our study for Nehemiah. And I will hope you will be able to be with us throughout all of our study, all 13 chapters. As you can see, there is much to learn. We're only four verses in and already beginning to see ways we can uh, emulate Christ through the example of of Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's clear to me that my, I oftentimes, Lord, put um, my hope for change in my own life or this nation, this church, Church of America, the body of Christ as a whole, in plans, books. My own ideas. It's clear to me, Father, that in this passage, our, my first response, and I pray our first response, would be to, about whatever issue it may be, large or small, but especially about big issues, maybe even more so, especially about the small issues, we would go to you first and you alone. Father, I do pray for this church, the culture and around us is a strong influence and it's easy to slip to watering down this word of God it's easy to get complacent about 
issues of our day that scripture speaks strongly to and to the point that's even very, very unpopular. It's easy, Father, to try to water down your character and weigh one attribute stronger than another, somehow hoping we'll make you more appealing and beautiful to those around us. It's easy for us in our day to marginalize our sin. I pray, Father, that we would we would repent. We know, Father, that you never leave us nor forsake us. And as the way, the truth, and life, as the gate, as the door to salvation, you are never broken down. But within our own minds, Father, we oftentimes water that down and forgive us for doing so. And Lord, I pray that you would help us in the world we each live in, the people, the influences we have to seek once again in the minds of others, in our own minds, to be reminded of the truth of Scripture and to strengthen those walls and to set that gate strong that the only way, the one and only way to salvation is through Christ alone. And then to have that wall of salvation strengthened so that as you would draw individuals through Christ to yourself, that they would be strengthened in the understanding of their, uh, the eternality of their soul with you forever. They would not uh, fail to, to trust you. They would not grow faint or weary in the fact that you will finish the work in each one of us you will bring us to completion. Father, we thank you for the day you provided for us. We thank you for this study. We're encouraged to see how you have used one man who is willing to submit himself to you. And that's the story, Lord, that you have continually reiterated, reiterated throughout all the scripture. And Lord, we are, we're amazed to see your providential hand and we know that it's upon us and we look forward to seeing how you will work it out trusting in your grace that you will use us as you so desire for your glory help us to be vessels Lord that are clean and fit for the master's use in Jesus precious name we pray amen